If you've been following in the daily Bible reading, you know that the string of Psalms deals almost perfectly with the issues that we are dealing with in the world scene today. And it's precisely because of that that I thought we'd move into the New Testament and give you a little brighter side. <laughs> so uh, the Psalms are pretty self-explanatory, and I think that you'll appreciate them. Let's turn into Matthew. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to look at verse 28, the last verse of chapter 16, and we'll move into one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture that I can think about in the whole Bible. The only way I could title this was to say this is the best mountaintop experience ever, ever. Remember, how many of you have had mountaintop experiences, whether they're literal, physical mountaintop experiences or spiritual mountaintop experiences? You know, the spiritual ones are, 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 are incredible. Uh, I, I've mentioned this before because Terry was with us on this uh, backpacking trip, and I remember being at the top of Laurel Mountain. Uh, Terry, you remember this, don't you? And we're on those rocks, and we're looking down, six miles down through that windy Yakagani River to Haipau. And I, we could see the, the uh, hawks flying below us, and it was pretty spectacular. Pretty spectacular. You're shaking your head because you got shin splints, didn't you, on the way down? No. <laughs> I did. <laughs> uh, we were up in New England, Mount Washington. Mount Washington is where the, the record wind uh, has been recorded on the face of the earth, over 200, 200 miles per hour. It's where the people, the little crew that works up on top of the mountain stays up there and don't come down unless they have to. And uh, it was foggy, the, the cloud had covered the mountain, and uh, we wanted to go up, and so we waited to the following morning, and we were happy to see the sun shining and the clear skies, and we took the trip up to the top of Mount Washington. What a mountaintop experience, but nothing compares to this one. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 28, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here. 2,000 years ago now he wrote this. There are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, you and I might not be able to understand what he's referring to when he talks about the Son of Man coming in His kingdom as far as its full fruition, you see. But the disciples are going to get a glimpse of it. They're going to see something that is going to be encouraging to them for the rest of their lives. And that's important. Jesus had earlier in Matthew chapter 16 taken the disciples aside to the region of Caesarea Philippi. It was a vacation spot. It was a place where they could rest and relax away from the crowds. And you remember that when Jesus is sitting there talking to his disciples while they're relaxing, he asked them the question, who do men say the Son of Man is? In verse 13. And of course, they give him all the answers. Well, some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah. Some think you're Jeremiah. Some think you're this prophet. You're that prophet. But Jesus looks at them and says, but who do you say that I am? Peter, answering for all of them, says, what? 
verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that's, that's critical to understand. It's critical to understand. And you'll see in a moment, perhaps. So Jesus answered and said, you got the right answer. He talks to Peter. He talks to the disciples. And then he said, don't tell anyone that he is the Christ. And uh, the reason, of course, is Jesus came. He is God who has taken on the form of man. And he has come to die for the sins of the world. And it's important that that message gets out there. And so he starts predicting to his disciples his death. And I can imagine the response of the disciples. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and then raised the third day. Having the minds that we do as human beings, they probably focused on the killing part but didn't focus on the resurrection part. Isn't that the way we are most of the time? We focus on the negative, but we don't deal with the positive. And so it's important for you to understand that in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record the fact that Jesus began to predict his death, and he continues to discuss his death until that Passion Week comes. If that weren't bad enough, Peter, I'm just mentioning this to you because Peter is the guy who always talked before he thought. He says, oh, Lord, no, 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 no. This isn't going to happen to you. Well, that was a real offense to the Lord. And it should be to all of us who understand the plan and purpose of God that Jesus should die for our sins. And this is the first time, not the only time, but this is the first time that Jesus indicated that what you're sharing with us is right from Satan himself. And so he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus discusses taking up the cross and following him. The disciples, no doubt, during that vacation period of time, where they should have been relaxed, and they should have been refreshed, and they should have been ready to get back into work, we're probably getting discouraged and probably getting disappointed in what they were hearing. And Jesus wonderfully says, I'll tell you what, Peter, James, John, come with me up onto a high mountain, apart from everybody else, by yourselves. And the Bible says that he was transfigured before them. Now, I want to make sure that I deal with this passage of Scripture in the remaining time that we have in a down-to-earth manner. What do I mean in a down-to-earth manner? Well, I want us to take this account as it is presented to us. I don't want us to embellish it. I don't want us to take a look at this and, and try to spiritualize everything. I don't want us to speculate on this passage of Scripture. I think it's really critically important that we don't do that. What is speculation? Well, speculation is when you don't have enough information to draw a conclusion, but you draw that conclusion anyway because you're depending upon your great smarts to figure it out. And we do a lot of that. 
And unfortunately, we don't have enough information here to do that here. For instance, one of the questions I don't want us to speculate is when the Bible says that Jesus was transfigured before them, I don't want us to sit around thinking about what did Jesus morph into. I think it's dangerous to do that. Now, I realize the Greek word. I've had Greek. I understand this. I've 13 courses in Greek. I understand that the word metamorphosis comes from this word that he used. But just because society uses it a certain way doesn't mean that we are to understand it the same way. And it's very important for us to understand that the Bible doesn't say that he was transformed into something else. He was transfigured before them. And that transfiguration included his face. It shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And I thought, how on earth can I get into the pulpit on Sunday morning and give everybody time to think about that? How can I give everybody time in 15 minutes to walk up the mountain, to sit there? The Bible tells us in Luke, now this account is Matthew. He wasn't there. Luke gives us an account of it. He wasn't there. He got his account, obviously, from uh, the Apostle Paul and other disciples. Uh, uh, Mark wasn't there. He got his account from Peter. Uh, John was there. So Peter and John were both there. And they both have something to say about this later in their books. But having said, how can I, you know, one of the things you want to do is you probably want to go home. You want to take this passage of Scripture. You want to sit there and just want to imagine the whole thing. Luke says that Jesus was praying. It's not included in Matthew and Mark. Jesus was praying and the disciples, Peter, Peter, James, and John fell asleep. Where have we heard that before? Those same three guys fell asleep at the Garden of Gethsemane. They're sleeping when they're abruptly awakened by this transfiguration. And finally, when they're, when they're wide awake and they understand what's going on, they're able to put it together a little bit. But it's a fantastic, fantastic thing. Now, what do I mean by not... Now, listen, some people spiritualize this and say, well, this didn't literally happen. It was just... Uh, a, a, a dream, it was just a, a vision, it was just uh, something that they conjured up in their own imaginations. When the Bible says that Jesus was transfigured, it was the rays of sun behind them that was causing this to look the way it did. It kind of reminds me of the, of the little boy with the five loaves and two fishes, you know. Those who don't believe the Bible happens the way the Bible describes it, and there's no miracles, like to take that particular parable and say, well, you know what really happened that day is it wasn't a miracle. What really happened that day is there was a, there were, everybody had their lunches with them, and when they saw that this little boy was willing to take his little lunch and give it to everybody, it kind of caught them in their hearts. And then they took out the lunches they were hiding. Oh, this happened. It's literal. The Bible says Jesus went transfigured. Now, I, when I say don't speculate, let me tell you what we do know. We know that Jesus was born... God took on the form of man and Jesus was born and Jesus grew up with a human nature in a human body. That we know. 
we know that most people couldn't figure out that there was more to it than that. Most people could not see that not only was Jesus fully man, but Jesus was also fully God. And that's what the disciples are getting an opportunity to see. It's not that Jesus is morphing into something. It's not that he, he, has, uh, he has shed his body. It's not that he, has, um, um, he is something other than who he was. His human nature and his human form were now shining forth the glory of God. That's the safest position to take. The disciples had an opportunity to see the full majesty of God. As best they could see it. As best as God could give it to them at that period of time. You'll remember in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says that Jesus gave up his glory in heaven. He gave up, he didn't give up his attributes. He didn't give up his characteristics as God. But when he came to this earth, he used them occasionally. But most of the time, we saw him in his human form living among us so that we had the definite impression that this person who was going to go to the cross and die for our sins was definitely a human being. But he would show his glory. He would show it from time to time in miracles that he performed. But now they're getting to see it from a very physical perspective. The glory of God is shining through Jesus. So much so that it alters his clothes. Now... So it's just his appearance that is altered. And I think it's very important. You remember when Jesus in John chapter 17, verse 5, is praying to his heavenly Father and he's saying, would you restore to me the glory I had with you before when I was in heaven with you? You probably ought to put passages of Scripture like that together. And I'll be very honest with you, it helps me to understand the revelation of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. When we see the glory of God in the person of Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Well, having said that, there's a second thing here. Not only do we not want to speculate as far as the transfiguration is concerned, because now the disciples are seeing the glory of God, the majesty of God in Christ. And the Bible says in verse 3, that behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. I would think that every person would really be interested in this passage of Scripture because of what it talks about as far as life and death is concerned or what it implies as far as life and death is concerned. I would think that every one of us should be interested in this passage of Scripture if we want to know life and death and what persons are like in heaven and is Jesus really God? Questions like that. I would think that this would be one of the most exciting passages of Scripture to read. I was in the Holy Land. I didn't get a chance to go to the Mount of Transfiguration. I did pass by Mount Tabor, which was often said this was the mountain. I thought, well, that's not very high. And weren't there people living there during the time of the New Testament? And, 
And uh, most commentators will say, well, it's Mount Hermon up in the north, a snow-capped mountain up in the north. And we have some indication of that might be the possibility, might be the possibility, because in some of the references here we have to his transfiguration, his clothing becomes as white as light, or as one of them says, as white as snow, glistening, dazzling, you see. But Moses and Elijah appear to them, talking with him. They're having a conversation with Jesus. Now, what I can tell you is that Jesus and Elijah and uh, Moses know each other all very, very, very well. They've been talking for centuries. Not a new experience. In fact, Jesus introduced himself to Moses back in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, remember? And uh, the interesting thing about this passage of Scripture is we can speculate about this and we can say, well, I, I, this is amazing. Here are two people who God has brought, surely that's the position you're taking, surely that God has brought Elijah and God has brought Moses from heaven to this point, and they themselves are in glory. To a degree. Now, <clears throat> how can I speculate about this? Well, you know, and I'm glad the commentators for the most part, you have a few exceptions to the rule, but I'm glad the commentators for the most part are very careful about this and only say things that could probably have happened. But when I think about Elijah and Moses, I think about two people who both had mountaintop experiences, both of them. Moses' mountaintop experience at Sinai is incredible, and there's so many facets to it that you ought to read it and you ought to, add, you ought to look at it every time he went up to the mountain, every time he came down, every time he went back up. It culminates in being up there on the mountain for 40 days with the Lord. Elijah had some pretty fantastic mountain experiences. He did have this contest on the top of Mount Carmel. I was there. I saw what it was like on Mount Carmel, and that's a fantastic experience to realize that he had victory over the prophets of Baal. But his big experience is when he went into the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days seems to happen a lot with these two guys. And um, he finds himself at Mount Sinai. The mountaintop experience he had there, the other one's not compared to that one, with his personal encounter with the Lord there. But why Elijah and why Moses? Well, I'm just a country boy. I'm just going to look at it from a down-to-earth understanding. I'm not going to speculate. I'm not going to say, how did Moses get his body back? Because surely he couldn't have been on top of that mountain without his physical body. Because as you know, Moses died and his body was buried on the top of Mount Pisgah. Elijah, on the other hand, was taken into heaven in bodily form. Now, you can try and wrap your head around all of that and suggest that, well, maybe Moses had to get his body back or 
Maybe Elijah's body had to be totally glorified like a resurrected body. You can do that if you want to. But there's plenty in Scripture to indicate that, and I think this is true, I really think this is true, that Moses, whose body was buried, represents the dead who are going to rise again. And Elijah, who still has his body, represents the living who shall be changed. All of this happening at the second coming of Christ. I really do. I believe that that's what you have here in this passage of Scripture. So, those of you who wonder what it's like, you know, the Bible says that we shed our body when we go to heaven for that short period of time before the resurrection of Christ when God brings us all back and he creates a new heaven and a new earth. You say, wow, I wonder what it's be like with people floating around without bodies. Well, Moses looked pretty cool. <laughs> you can, there's all kinds of questions. Write them down sometime. Ask yourself, how on earth did the disciples know who Moses was and who Elijah was? They had personally never seen either one of them. Just, it's okay to think about it. It's okay to wonder about it. Just don't speculate and come to conclusions when you don't have enough information. But it's interesting that there's no difference between Moses and no difference between Elijah. Those two people, they're on the mountain. They're discussing with Jesus his decease, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and probably his ascension as well. But basically, it begins with his crucifixion. Now, this was such a dramatic event in Peter's life that he talks about it later when he writes the book of 2 Peter. Turn with me to 2 Peter. We'll just read this, and it'll confirm some of the observations that I have already made. There's only three verses here. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and following, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing his second letter. And he says to us, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. I think he's dealing with, by the way, I think he's dealing with speculation right there. He said, let's, let's forget about all the speculation. What really happened is, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses of what? His majesty. We got to see God shining through in the human person of Christ. Wow. Verse 17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And you'll know you'll know that a cloud overshadowed a bright cloud. So this is not just any ordinary cloud. This is kind of like the clouds in the Old Testament where God was personally present. A cloud overshadowed them and the disciples on top of the trans Mount of Transfiguration. The Bible says that they heard a voice from heaven, heard a voice saying, this is my beloved son. And Peter refers to that here. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. 
And then finally, see, you can't do much in 15, 20 minutes. You can't do that much. But, but turn to John chapter 1 because this event also affected John the rest of his life. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Only one verse here, but he's giving us an introduction into the life Christ is talking about how he is eternally with God because he is eternally God. And notice one verse in verse 14. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, everybody together, we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I have no doubt whatsoever that that mountain experience was in his mind in addition to other things when he wrote that. Our time is done. So let me close this with Matthew 17, verse 9, because this is the saddest part of that mountaintop experience. The cloud overshadowed them. The disciples heard the voice of the Lord Jesus, they were afraid. Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, I find that very sad. They had to come down from the mountain. And they encounter problems almost right from the get-go when they come down. Boy, you and I have our mountaintop experiences, but I'll tell you what. Uh, we can't stay there. Until Jesus comes back, we've got to come down from the mountain. And we've got to deal with, and the disciples had to deal with, and I'm, I, I can't give you much application other than that, but to simply say to you, that it's important for us to understand that God is gracious in giving this mountaintop experience so that not only the disciples got to see it, three of them got to see it, then ultimately all the disciples understood it, and then God led four of them, three of them, well, actually four if you include, if you include um, Peter and John in their remarks, to describe it to us so we could appreciate it as well. There's going to be one mountaintop experience that's going to be even better than this as far as time goes. And that is when Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives to set up his kingdom on this earth. Amen? Is he going to do that? Or are you going to be like the liberal who says, well, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> You're just imagining it. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the promises that you give to us. What an encouragement this passage of Scripture is to us. It clears up a lot of our thinking. Father, I thank you. I thank you for thinking about us and sharing this with us. And Lord, we know, Lord, that you are there to guide us and direct us when we come off the mountain. But Lord, we're looking for that next mountaintop experience. Jesus, in your name, because of what you've done for us, we are anticipating it. 
great anticipation. In your name we pray, amen. Let's